Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the Pioneers Show, the show where we talk with innovators, makers, entrepreneurs, basically people who are creating their own trails and creating their own lives so that we all can learn about how to work with our own lives. This is episode four, and I'm your host, Andre Dialquerque. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as the show at Pioneers Show on Instagram as well. Before I go introduce the guest, I would just love to thank Sam, last week's episode, for the introduction. With us today, we have Nathan Williams. Nathan is a very charismatic person. He's a multi-time founder, a Canadian now living in Berlin. He's now working on a solution for supply chain blockchain applied for conflict minerals. If, just in case you didn't understand a single thing I just said, might as well jump into the show with this week's guest, Nathan. Hello, Nathan. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. So for the ones at home that don't know who you are, do you want to venture off? there's and... some people that don't know who I am already? Yeah. My fame hasn't preceded me. Um, <laughs> I am, my name is Nathan Williams. I'm the founder and CEO of MindSpider. Mm -hmm. And so we are using blockchain to track responsibly sourced metals. So essentially it's a protocol for mm -hmm. transferring uh, supply chain data, essentially, uh, about metals that have been responsibly sourced. So um, some people may have heard of the issue of conflict minerals. This mm -hmm. is how we got, uh, got started thinking about how can we avoid funding terror, funding armed groups in Congo and in, uh, in areas like that with the metals that go into our smartphones and our jewelry. And it's a challenge because Although companies really want to protect themselves from, from uh, oh, thank you, someone just delivered me coffee. Mm -hmm. um, although companies want to protect their brand image, they, no one wants to end up funding slavery, human rights abuses, uh, environmental disasters. It, it is an enormous challenge because metals are fungible. They can be mixed together. Mm -hmm. It's not like a diamond where you can maybe engrave the edge. It's uh, a, a bit more complicated than say, uh, clothing where you can put in a tag and make mm -hmm. sure it came not from a sweatshop. Like, those are challenges, not to say that those aren't complicated, mm -hmm. but this is sort of a, another level of complicated because you've got this issue of um, intermixability. Uh, like uh, gold from multiple smelters can be smelted together. Into one, and how can you then understand? But, okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's a big challenge. And so... Um, what we've done is we've come up with a protocol that is able to do sort of two things. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the one hand, it can transmit uh, unique identifiers for shipment numbers, for you know, weighed bags and containers, uh, so that metal coming out of a responsible source can be sort of tracked. And uh, on the other hand, it also allows for, uh, uh, for blockchain tracking of pure mass amounts. So mm -hmm. as... Think of like how you would track green energy on an electrical grid. If you go out and buy green energy tomorrow, um, your, the electricity going to your house will still be mixed with coal and nuclear. But the money that you've paid will be traceable back to the green energy company because uh, it's limited by the amount of production. So you know that uh, the wind farm is producing, say, 100 kilowatt hours, and so uh, you're mm -hmm. buying 100 kilowatt hours, and so... Uh, so even you, if you take some non-green energy, your payment is still focused on the green energy supply. I, exactly. So it, it, it's important with metals um, to have the option to do both things because if you're, uh, for example, a, a smelter in the middle of the supply chain, you're refining metals, metals come in from multiple sources, um, theoretically... To participate in the world market, you should have gone to all your mines, done due diligence, make sure they're all responsible. But not everyone's going to be working on blockchain tomorrow. And so unless you have two different production lines, it's impossible to not have those amounts from the blockchain certified and the non-blockchain certified sources mixed together. Like it's, it's really not scalable beyond a... Um, beyond a test or a pilot mm -hmm. project. So having this ability to do mass balance at the same time as being able to track unique shipments or once it's in final form uh, is critical to being sure that you have a, respon uh, a responsible uh, uh, solution that can scale to industrial levels. Interesting, because you already went ahead and talked, with, talked about one of the, the, the points that I want to ask you about is the... I read an interview that you did... <coughs> 
some time ago. I don't know how long how long it was, but you talked about the um, the analogy between the green energy and your your company, and I was interested in knowing going a little bit more in depth. And you already did that in the intro. Well, it's it, it's funny that you, in a industrial blockchain setting, you really do need a lot of analogies in order to help communicate this. And I think even in the blockchain area, you need a lot of analogies. Seeing that it's still very early stage absolutely i mean if you think about anything blockchain related it's it's almost career level complex right like the, there's a lot of people sniffing around that are interested because there's you know uh, new technology money to be made there's uh, people who don't want to miss the boat but understanding it is a challenge and it's sort of like i mean how does the internet work what is the internet Yeah, average person can't explain that, but they know what it is because they use it, and mm -hmm. that's where we're going to get with blockchain. But we're not there yet, and so having having analogies is important. So you think that for the blockchain technology as a as a as a protocol as an idea, it's still very in its early stages, as everyone knows. But you think that in some time people will stop thinking as analogies and start thinking as just internet. As it is. I, I think so. I think so. Because uh, it'll become part of what we use. I mean, this is sort of what everyone expects, is that it's going to achieve mass adoption, that mm -hmm. it's going to maybe underpin a lot of the technologies we take for granted every day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I mean, right now, sort of like the Internet. I mean, do you know how the Internet works? I have well, no idea. TCP, IP, most people can't explain it. It's very technical. And it, but Even HTTP and HTTPS, it's protocols that it's hard to explain. If someone asks you, say, well, this is the interface of the web, this is secure interface of the web, but even so, it's, what? Exactly. And when, I'm, when you're dealing with something like regulatory tech, regula regula <laughs> regulations and policy are also career-level complex. It's just a completely different mm -hmm. field, right? And so people, you know, they spend their careers learning the ins and outs of international uh, 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 policy and There, and there are unintended consequences when you change the game theory of mm -hmm. this stuff. And so when you've got blockchain, which is, you know, one sort of ivory tower world, and you've got uh, policy, which is another, you know, mixing them together is a challenge. And so that's why I saw sort of the opportunity to sort of put a hand in both uh, fields, stand in mm -hmm. the gap and say, okay, well, someone's got to know about how this works. And okay. that was sort of the, what appealed to me about, the, about this field in the first place. So taking a little step back on that, why regulatory mm -hmm. technology? Because from what I've read about you, it's not the first startup that you work in in regulatory I think tech. that uh, sort of answers the own question. I mean, I had the background. Um, when I first moved to Berlin, or maybe I should back up. Uh, yeah, like, where, where are you from? I'm from Canada originally, and I was 15 years in Montreal. I did my bachelor of computer science and then my MBA, and then afterwards a lot of people I knew had moved away and my wife and I said it's time for a change. My wife had visited Berlin briefly and she said I, uh, I like the city because she visited in July before, uh, <laughs> not before during the winter. winter. I mean and Canada in the winter might be harsher than Berlin, no? Oh yeah. It's, uh, Depends on the place in Canada. Anyway, I said it was good enough for me and we came and Canada, when we are, are left, Canada was negative 25 degrees. It was negative 5 in Berlin, so I was like alright, let's go to the beach. <laughs> but uh, it was gray for six weeks when we first arrived and it took a lot of doing to make my network here and uh, my goal was to integrate myself into the startup scene mm -hmm. and uh, my first company I started was because uh, I had a contact uh, who was uh, following uh, following what I was doing on uh, Facebook and uh, after I graduated mm -hmm. and, uh, saw that I made connections in Berlin and was uh, it was getting things started and um, it was a regulatory tech company and it uh, was called NW Hinwise Solutions and I still have that company it does a lot of things it uh, it's a uh, we do software development um, and the uh, and the first thing that that we did was software for a large basically an oil, and it wasn't that large, a medium-sized oil and gas supply company, mm -hmm. a service company, and uh, one of the owners had stolen $12 million from the other owners and they wanted to prove it. And they had all of the documentation handwritten on paper and they wanted to basically put it into a giant database, compare it to the internal accounting records, which were also on paper and had taken multiple 
uh, transactions and merge them into one without uh, in multiple currencies without having the exchange rate present. And so we had to use statistical methods to sort of compare and say, okay, well, was this reasonable or was someone trying to make money off of this? And uh, in order for them to prepare their case. And um, so, and that was H I N Ys. Hinweis. Hinweis. It's sort of like uh, the German word Hinweis. You know, like advice. Mm. Uh, so it's sort of like a English German pun. Okay, so a Hinweis. Was that the main company? Because from what I read, it's more of a company builder itself, right? I spun off everything else from that company. So it's a company on its own. And, mm -hmm. I, and I used the skills and expertise and the people in that company mm -hmm. to found other projects. And I founded a number of other projects. Some of them became their own companies. Some of them did not. Like Subvise, for example. Subvise uh, was my... Uh, project they took off after that mm -hmm. and it was a chemical regulation startup and so basically as my first big project was wrapping up with Hinwise uh, we saw that we would need other projects and I was talking to other people in the regulatory space and we f saw there was a European chemical regulation that was mm -hmm. going to be hitting people hard called the REACH regulation and essentially it mean that, meant that every chemical uh, that is used in uh, in Europe had uh, over a certain tonnage amount had to be registered uh, with tests done depending on how much was used uh, scientific data gathered it was a huge problem for companies and we basically created this monitoring system to uh, to keep track of you know changes in the regulation automatically for mm -hmm. people we had BASF as a customer for a while um, oh sorry BASF Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it was basically to, to keep track of a large list of chemicals. And uh, in the end, uh, we ended up merging with a company, uh, a competitor company, and mm -hmm. we felt we would do better together. Toward the end, we were working on machine learning algorithms for identifying legislative documents that were about chemicals and not, so that we could detect, mm -hmm. early detect changes. And yeah, that's uh, that's how I got started in regulatory tech. And then it's I, a very unsexy area of tech, I assume. No, it's funny. The unsexiness makes it sexy. Like I never had problems speaking at places because in in the tech world, everyone's doing an app for the next uh, e-commerce, the next social mm -hmm. media, whatever. And they're like, "Ooh, you're doing something for for industry. This is interesting." You know, it's like. It, it, it's not quite blue ocean, mm -hmm. but it's pretty blue ocean. I mean, there, there, there's like not many companies that know the field. And the ones that do usually are either old economy. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, they're, they're tra more traditional, uh, slower moving. They don't, they may not, may or may not be agile. They may or may not be relying as heavily mm -hmm. on PR and the coolness factor, like a, a traditional startup or on angel funding or, VC funding in order to scale fast. Mm -hmm. not, they might not even be thinking of scale uh, uh, or disruption. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an interesting space to be in as a startup. Interesting. Same thing with, uh, with my most recent one, which is Mindspider, Spider, right? So um, we've had a lot of support and help from people because there are accelerators and there are programs specifically dedicated to startups in the mining sector. I think there are three startups in the mining sector. Like the, there are more people looking to help startups in the mining sector than there are mining startups, because it's it, it's got uh, a barrier to entry. You have to know the industry, and there are th there aren't a lot of people in the industry outside of the startup world that is interested in creating a startup. Well, think about it this way. I mean, if you're in the mining industry, you see the problems, but you also have a job that probably pays you eighty to a hundred thousand euros a year. And so are you going, and maybe you have a wife and kids and you've got a lot of experience and are you really ready to put all of that on the line uh, at an outside chance while your kids are still in school? So it's, it's sort of hard to make that leap when you've got uh, sort of this stability. But if you're in a position to actually start a mining startup, like maybe you're doing your PhD and you've come across something interesting, um, or you're... Uh, 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 
that's really the only place that you can because I mean if you're if you're like a, a 20 something going out to start a startup you're going to be thinking of the problems that you encounter day to day you're going to be thinking e-commerce you're going to be thinking uh, you know I have trouble communicating you're going to be thinking uh, I want to do uh, uh, something for IDs or, or something that you've experienced yeah, the, on the day to day how many people have, uh, who are in a position to start a startup uh, have experience in the mining industry Then let me put it put it this way: How did you get into the mining area? Because I assume you weren't through some buys. So because uh, and through the end users. So the thing is, in with Subvise, I was in contact with a lot of large companies who, uh, and the people I was talking with were in product stewardship. And product stewardship means that they're dealing with chemical hazards, but it also means they're dealing with other parts of the raw materials, including conflict minerals. And so this was sort of my introduction to that world. And I was looking for applications of blockchain after I was introduced by a few people. And mm -hmm. uh, I said, okay, well, you know, how can we, can we apply this? And conflict minerals looked like a direct application that had a lot of interest at the time. So taking now the, the, the main focus of, the, of this interview more on the mind spider area. So you were introduced well, introduced on blockchain by some people and you sought to find out some application on the real world of the technology. Always, yeah. You always want to find, well, I always want to find an application to the real world. And uh, I consider myself sort of half entrepreneur, half inventor. <laughs> I, I love tinkering with things and seeing, okay, what can we build out of this? Uh, But that's good. Half entrepreneur, half maker. I mean, since they're the pioneers show, it's innovators, creators, builders, makers, entrepreneurs, It's good because you're trying to get in and all of the, the words that we try to put in. <laughs> I, I like building. I don't have enough time to build, honestly. Like I, I, I still tinker. I, mm -hmm. I still code. Not as much as I would like to. And I, if I was responsible for building MindSpider myself, it would probably get done probably sometime in 2021. But, uh, <laughs> because of the lack of time you have for other projects as well. I mean, there's only so, only so many things that you can focus on mm -hmm. at a given time. And when you're, when you're CEO, your job is to get money in. Right. You're, mm -hmm. I mean, you got to build the team. You've got to. You've got to uh, build the communications. You've got to make sure that the legal is is right. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to. Uh, but ultimately, you get money in, and then other people do the work. Uh, mm -hmm. That's sort of the, the the role it is. And I think you know, first time entrepreneurs may or may not realize that um, that and and uh, honestly, the the trouble that I've run into over and over again is focusing on too many areas. It's like, I like building, and so I want to focus on a good product. And the problem with focusing on a good product is that someone's got to go and sell the darn thing. Mm. So, you know, someone's got to make sure that investment money is coming in, and that's a form of sales. Someone's got to make sure that HR, like you're recruiting top talent. That's selling as well. You're telling mm -hmm. people you, you should take a risk on, uh, on, on us. us. Yeah. Uh, like, there's, there's a lot going on there, and... Uh, It's not that builder founders aren't good. I mean, I've met some builder founders who were mm -hmm. amazing, that they built the first prototype uh, themselves. And, you know, uh, I still, like I said, I still code. I, but uh, I know enough to get me in trouble. Mm -hmm. Probably not enough that I could build the MVP. Mm, okay. I could probably build the prototype, but not the MVP, because it would just take way too long. Okay, and as a CEO, let's put it this way. What's the... the This is some area that even though I'm working in blockchain area, it still sometimes gets me a little bit confused. What's the economy around the mind spider area? So how does the money come in? I assume it's through ICOs, so, uh, token okay, sales. So this, uh, I mean, this is a good thing to talk about sort of in general, mm -hmm. that in general for uh, for a blockchain project, you have a number of different business models, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to have a proper token economy if you're doing something decentralized. MindSpider is going to be decentralized. It is going to be a protocol. And on top of the protocol, we are building our own app, our mm -hmm. dApp. DAP. Right? Or... right, or DAP. I, I prefer DAP as well. I've seen, heard people pronounce it both. But basically, it's sort of like you build your own app that functions with the internet. You it's on top of Ethereum, I assume. Right now, we are building on Ethereum. Okay. Exactly. So, the... Anyway, so uh, the thing is, the protocol can be funded with 
with a with a token, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to use a token in order to do key functions of a distributed uh, system. You need to mm -hmm. stake tokens in order to, uh, in order to uh, interact with the system, like uh, to be registered, to be certified, to uh, have governance and vote in the system. And uh, this is important for a decentralized. Mm -hmm system because it, otherwise you have one central body saying okay well I'll charge a fee and I'll um, I'll control who gets to access the system and who doesn't and what we're uh, and what we see with mine spider and with the the mining industry in general is that it is very important to have one standard let me back up just mm -hmm. ever so slightly sure Right now, a number of companies are experimenting with blockchain solutions for the mineral supply chain, right? So you've got BMW, you've got uh, uh, IBM, you've got a, a couple of different companies that are building up uh, pilots mm -hmm. for sourcing certain minerals. The problem is that if you've got 50 different end companies that uh, all have their own private permission blockchains, somewhere in the upstream is going to be a smelter that has 50 different systems to mm -hmm. use. They all don't talk to each other. They all communicate off-chain. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like decisions as to which minerals go to who are made off-chain. Mm -hmm. And it becomes an logistical and organizational nightmare. And if that happens, all of the organizational work is on that upstream supplier, so that smelter or, who, or the mine or whoever it is, and has to connect everything to different systems, different blockchains, different UI, what, different UI, whatever. And, and what's the incentive for them to run it? You know, like mm -hmm. uh, they yeah, okay, they want to be part of BMW supply chain, maybe, or uh, or or all of these others. But I mean, it's it ends up eroding the. Uh, the effectiveness of the system. Mm -hmm. And so uh, from our point of view, what's needed is a disincentive to have competition. There should be one, uh, one smart contract system or one mm -hmm. set of tools that everybody uses, but then they should feel comfortable that their supply chain data is self-sovereign. No one's going to see it except so when you, Sorry, when you say one is that for both the main guys, so IBM, BMW, that uses MindSpider at the same time that the miners use it as well. So one and system to rule them all. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's sort of like if you wanted to create the next Uber competitor and mm -hmm. you said, okay, well, we better build our own internet. It wouldn't work, you know, mm -hmm. because people would have to have uh, their own protocol on their phone. Like, they're, they're, like And if every app... Uh, the, you build an Airbnb competitor. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to build my own internet now. You know, it's like eventually you, these these systems don't talk to each other. You end up having uh, having communications issues. You know, uh, you would have issues with processing payments. You'd have issues with all sorts of things if you don't have one standard protocol to use. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is if you have a protocol, number one, it should not have an intrinsic fee. Because if it has an intrinsic fee, then you've incentivized someone to go and create a competitor so mm -hmm. that doesn't have the fee so that they can have control. And then the second thing is that it should not have a centralized entity controlling it. Okay. All right. So if I'm, if Nathan at MindSpider is saying, okay, this company can join and this company doesn't, then I'm susceptible to bribery. Mm -hmm. Right, it's like okay, well, you know, give you're me. corruptible. It, it's uncorruptible at that point, and uh, you know, no, of course I'm not. No, 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 you know, I would never be corruptible, but you know, like if I left and someone else took over, then uh, you know, no. But this is the thing: you don't want one one single point of failure. Mm -hmm. You want to set up a system that works at scale, where if uh, a group of companies comes in and they say, well, this is done fairly, we can join the system as sort of the trusted providers of whatever material, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, the idea then is you have, uh, I'm drawing a line out here, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you have the MindSpider protocol, mm -hmm. which is one standardized way of transmitting information that has the following properties. Uh, it creates an immutable, uh, verifiable uh, link between suppliers and end users. Mm -hmm. uh, end users, 
can see that there's a link, but they don't necessarily know who the links are. In Sorry, j just before end users, we are assuming the big companies, the big yeah, company? com okay. companies. Sorry. Okay, so, so it, down, it, it downstream, ends downstream users. I'm going to say not in not in consumers. Okay, like, so like, it ends the, the the last user ends on the company that sells it. Exactly. Okay. The, uh, we could theoretically take this model to an end consumer, but mm -hmm. I think that that would be a mistake at this point. Okay, okay. Uh, we're looking right now at regulatory compliance, mm -hmm. due diligence, uh, like things within industry. Sorry, just okay. So we have on one side of the line, you have the the the, the miners and the smelters and everything, and on the other side, you have the end users. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So essentially, you need a protocol where. Uh, where if, if I'm, say, participating, I'm buying metal from, uh, from a supplier, I would see my uh, data from my immediate supplier. Of course, I know who they are, mm -hmm. but I, don't, uh, I know that they've purchased in, a, in an unbroken link back to a responsible mine, and mm -hmm. I see which mines those are, but I don't necessarily see the links in between because that's sensitive information. I just see that those links exist, that it's an, uh, there's an anonymous link, and a certain mm -hmm. amount of tonnage was sold through there, so I can have confidence that the amount uh, that I have is backed up by due diligence information that uh, that proves that this uh, this shipment was responsible mm. and and the thing is I want to make sure as well that my competitors cannot see this information all right that the that I can prove that, uh, that my material is responsible to the people that ask, to the to the regulators, to the uh, amnesty groups, to the mm -hmm. uh, uh, to uh, to myself. Um, but that I wouldn't be able to have my competitor come in and cut off my supply chain by by uh, by uh, buying out all of our mid mid tier suppliers because mm -hmm. they know where we get our stuff from or. Uh, Things like that, you know, that's sensitive company information. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's important to guard. Um, and then finally, uh, it needs to be scalable to industry. So how do you accomplish all of that, basically? And ba the answer is it's quite complex. It's <laughs> taken about a year of design in order to come up with a protocol that will do that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically... A high-level model mm -hmm. uh, is that we've used what, what I like to call a Russian doll sort of uh, data structure, where... Uh, the matryoshkas. Yeah, uh, matryoshka. Uh, how do you pronounce that? I say matryoshkas. Matryoshka, matryoshka. So essentially, if you imagine that a mine would be, uh, would be certified, that you know how much they produce because they're a big responsible mine, they've been audited, uh, then they create a data packet. In this data packet, I have due diligence information. Maybe it's photos of the mine. Maybe it's a list of their miners. Maybe it's a scan of their certificate. Uh, they can then sell that. Uh, they can sell this data to mm -hmm. the next people up the supply chain. And maybe because they maybe they are good for a certain amount of material, and mm -hmm. they sell some material to three different uh, 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 customers who will then be able to decrypt the data packet mm -hmm. themselves, add their own data, re-encrypt it with the... the oh, interesting. Block. So each block itself is more on the certifications of the different players within the supply chain. Exactly. It hmm. actually gets a bit more complicated than that with how we deal with uh, private data that you don't want to be seen upstream and public mm -hmm. data that you do, but that's more or less the uh, the, the mentality that we're coming with, uh, is this uh, Matryoshka uh, mm -hmm. data packet, so that when you buy it, you would see sort of more information, your, but not necessarily. More information, but not necessarily your competitor's information. And then, Interesting. And then hashes of that are stored in the blockchain along with the registered amounts and so that you can actually connect the data storage with the, with the blockchain records and that there's immutability as well. The thing is, that there's, uh, it's kind of expensive to, to assume this kind of control on, I assume that mining companies are not all big corporations. No, absolutely not. So it's small family businesses, I assume. So They're called ASMs, artisanal and small-scale miners, and that's where a lot of the challenge comes in. So how do you, do, do you incentivize that a small team of non-miners, so the, 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 the guys that run the business, the managers, are incentivized to participate, participate and maintain the control of the, their own? I want you to imagine 
the like if you're a small miner maybe in Congo or maybe somewhere else mm-hmm. um, what, uh, you probably hear from your uh, from your friends oh there's a mineral deposit over here let's go and just get uh, get mm-hmm. it then and you're, you're 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 mining and then suddenly an armed group comes in and says hey we'll give you a 20% money laundering bonus if you uh, if you sell to us now beforehand you were going to a depot and uh, selling there and you and it's legal and you collect you know information because the someone comes in and says hey uh, um, you know you got to pay taxes on this mm-hmm. you, gotta, you know you got to do this legally fill out these forms uh, but now someone's offering you a twenty percent money laundering bonus uh, to sell illegally and to collect taxes off you it's a non it's a non state armed group mm-hmm. and so your incentives are misaligned this is a problem and. So I want you to imagine now we have sort of a, a system where you can get paid for sourcing legally. So mm-hmm. you collect this data, but you, then you sell this data as, uh, as an asset, as mm-hmm. its own asset. And now you have an income stream. And maybe the group that sets up this, uh, uh, this way of giving you this income stream also uh, provides education and, and how to onboard. Like this is not a small problem, mm-hmm. right? But I with, assume it's not. I mean, it, uh, if it was a small problem, it would have been solved a long time ago. But the because I mean, people have been working on this for years. But I think what what I'm getting at is that there have been uh, unintended consequences of the conflict mineral regulations that have come into play. Mm-hmm. So you know, there have been negative incentives for mm-hmm. miners, for ASMs especially, but for miners in general to participate because all the costs are on them. And by having this sort of blockchain structure, you can end up connecting the people that benefit from the data mm-hmm. to the uh, to the responsible sources, and then the res- people that want to sort uh, sell responsibly mm-hmm. can end up getting uh, an income stream from providing this due diligence data. So through tokens, I assume. Sure. Exactly. I mean, through. I mean, but I mean, you can convert tokens into uh, into to fiat, fiat or. Yeah. I mean. These are steps in the plan, mm-hmm. but the idea is that if you can set up these, uh, set up this sort of system for uh, to positively incentivize uh, mines to participate, then you can expand to uh, make sure that the ASMs aren't left behind. Hmm. So basically, you're incentivizing through the token, through different income streams at the same time that you're providing education and probably other kinds of infrastructures that provide. So my assumption the, is... The idea isn't that I provide everything. The idea is that we're providing sort of the protocol, the plan, the platform, and then we have a, a number of partners that would come in. Like the idea here is we've created a protocol. We're going to create a DApp mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. can, that, that can run pilots and we can develop into its own business, but other people can make their own DApps. Maybe SAP wants its own integration with the SAP. There's no nothing stopping them from integrating and using our protocol. Because if someone down the line is buying a data packet from Mindspider and a data packet from the from uh, SAP that's integrated also in the Mindspider protocol, then it'd be able to decode them both easily and mm-hmm. uh, add their own thing and sell them on. So there's so no each of those big companies that's provide that's creating their own. Private blockchains, or uh, as you said, I don't remember the, the, the exact sentence, but BMW and IBM that are creating their own blockchains, they can integrate directly with MindSpider. That is the that is the plan. So the idea here is to take it away from private permission blockchains and make it into a public one, because hmm. you, I believe that public uh, public blockchain is necessary for transparency. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have private permissions, you run into you run into problems because then every like if you're supplying multiple private permission blockchains, then decisions are made off chain about uh, about the the provenance and wh- which minerals go where. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that leads to uh, eroding of the trust of the system. But if it's if it, I mean if you're dealing with transparency, it should be public. That's the thing. And so then, how do you make sure that public data on a public chain is still secure, so that you don't lose your, you know, uh, your business intelligence or, or anything like that? And that's where this data structure, Matryoshka uh, or Matryoshka uh, doll structure comes in. That's where the um, uh, the transmission protocol comes in, where uh, that is should really uh, people should feel comfortable 
building on top of it because it's open source because people can see how it runs and then be, uh, and then people can still set up their own businesses on it we're not going out to replace all of the auditors we're not, or the due diligence companies no they should be comfortable using the mind spider structure and platform exactly that's interesting so basically you're in some sense centering a lot of information but on a public network so you're decentralizing centralization at the same time Yeah, I, this is pretty, my... yeah, no, that, that, that's accurate. I mean, a lot of people talk about decentralization and centralization or trust and trustless uh, as though they're absolutes. But what it is is changing what parts are trusted and what parts are trustless. It's changing what parts are centralized and what parts are decentralized. Mm. So, um, so, for example, you've got a lot of people in the supply chain that don't necessarily trust each other, but that doesn't mean it's a completely trustless system. You still have to have a way of gathering information or a way of self-reporting that, uh, you know, or, or you need trusted third parties to audit or, or, like, there's a lot of places where there are existing methodologies for ensuring trust in this system. But what we're providing is a way of transmitting that, uh, that trust up the chain uh, in a way where you don't necessarily have to hold hands with your competitors mm -hmm. and say, well, we totally trust you, competitor, to not use this information for evil instead of for good. And uh, so, you know, I don't have to trust, uh, for example, uh, a centralized database company like uh, with, uh, with all of my private data. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about this. We could do everything that I'm describing with a centralized database. Yeah, sure. Easily. Except then you would have, have a single point of failure. Then I would have control of everybody's supply chain of data. I could control who is good and who is bad. And so we could decentralize that a bit by having, having it maybe run by a, uh, an association of mm -hmm. companies. But then you still have this issue of does this association control the entire, entire global market? Not everyone will want that. So how can you decentralize it in a way where people from multiple countries, multiple uh, points of the industry feel they have a voice and they're not being controlled by some sort of third-party police force mm -hmm. that's, um, that they don't have a voice in, uh, versus how can you uh, make sure that it's not anarchy? Um, segueing into a, a different area, but at the same time in the same tokenization area, have you performed any token sale, any ICO, any... Not yet. We intend to. We intend to. The, um, we have set up a, a, a Swiss structure because we've got a Swiss guy on the team. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we've been funded by selling equity, like a standard startup. And, ah, okay. Uh, but our intention is to... Uh, is to go and do a token sale. We're still looking into the way it has to be structured so that it's uh, so that it's a token that the the people that can use are uh, use properly. It, it has to be legal. It has to you know to be compliant and compliant. Make sure that it. But I mean, I think that for a system to be decentralized in a way uh, like this, mm -hmm. where you know where we're creating a protocol instead of a centralized company that's just going to run it. Uh, it's got a, it has to use a token. There's no way around it. And, and I assume that on the long-term vision that you, you already said this or tinkled a little bit around it, but I assume that you'll be able to eventually not only talk about minerals, but talk about other, prop, not, I won't say properties, other... Raw materials. Raw materials. Absolutely. I mean, there's, nothing, there's no particular reason why you can't do this for any other fungible good, like coffee or palm oil or... Uh, charcoal. Charcoal. Uh, it's funny you mentioned charcoal. I, I remember a few months ago talking with uh, a fellow who did a documentary on charcoal. Apparently a good chunk of the charcoal uh, sold in Germany comes from uh, uh, Namibia, I believe. And it, uh, uh, he was saying it that uh, Boko Haram gets funded by that because... Uh, Oh. Yeah, yeah, and it's not something that you would be aware of. Now, I, I, I haven't followed up with this fellow who was making the documentary at the time, but I mean, these are big challenges, and even though there's no specific, you know, conflict charcoal law, right, uh, you know, like there is with conflict minerals, mm -hmm. uh, it's still an important point that... And still that there's still a, a somewhat responsible way of doing stuff, and eventually, in some day or another, maybe there will be some regulation on the charcoal area. 
if the technology exists, uh, I could imagine it coming into play, and maybe it should. You know, like I think I don't think there's anyone alive that wants to, you know, fund armed groups and 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 human rights abuses and environmental abuses. I think it's just that they don't have the tools to be able to make responsible choices. Mm. And if it becomes easy, if it becomes painless, if it uh, if then there's no reason why we shouldn't, right? I mean, for me, I don't see this as a zero-sum game. And mm -hmm. I also don't see uh, MindSpider as being sort of an activist uh, NGO sort of thing. I, I see us as helping companies, helping them to provide goods and services in a responsible way that makes it easy for them so that the customers can feel comfortable. I am. I'm, I'm buying this and, it, and it's fine. You know? No one wants to... Uh, no one wants to, to fund these uh, atrocities. Mm -hmm. And moreover, people don't want to have the responsibility of looking. People want to trust that a company has this well under control. You don't want to pay a hundred bucks premium for a responsible iPhone. You're paying a premium already for the brand and you want to be able to trust that it is done correctly. And that's why these big brands have spent so much time and effort and resources on trying to secure the supply chain. And, uh, and the ones that are, have the biggest brand are the ones that have been put the most time and money into it because they want to be responsible. It's just it's an enormous challenge. Before blockchain, it was really impossible. And right now, we're on the edge of seeing how, yeah, with the proper protocol, with the proper uh, technology and the proper uh, onboarding, we can actually get there. We're still at sort of the early days. But, uh, but it's, it's moved from the realm of, oh my goodness, this is impossible, to this is going to be possible. Probably not today, but eventually. It's, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I mean, people are still working on core blo blockchain technologies now. They're working on, uh, on throughput, on you know, seven transactions a second. Mm -hmm. How can you increase that? On, um, uh, and, and we're seeing sort of next generation blockchain projects that are built on top of existing projects, you know, like IDs and, uh, and versioning and uh, uh, a document uh, history. But, and, and what we're talking about with MindSpider is almost built on top of that, right? So it's, mm -hmm. uh, supply chain is complex because it's a large number of transactions a second. It's a lot of people who are involved in the process. And um, I think it's going to come in stages. It doesn't mean that it's a long way off before we're going to see it having uh, an impact in the industry or being uh, or being piloted or, or or actually you know making a difference. But we're still a little ways off from seeing widespread adoption where it's sort of normal, right? Because there's a lot of challenges to overcome, and we're really at the beginning of seeing uh, companies uh, say, "Oh, how do we do this?" You know. Segwaying into a little bit more about learning about this specific subject, not necessarily just the regulatory part, but blockchain itself. Imagine that you're, you weren't here, you're at a big office with a lot of people assuming that you wanted to leave and create something on the blockchain area. Let's assume that, let's assume that you were you before you were introduced to blockchain. Where did you start to learn? What did you see? What did you read? <laughs> well, I have some stories for you. So at the beginning... Uh, two January 2017, I decided mm -hmm. I was going to do this. And so my first thing was I had to learn about two very complex areas, blockchain and uh, conflict minerals. And so mm -hmm. coincidentally, around that same time, there was a, uh, a, a Washington Post article mm -hmm. that was printed on conflict minerals. And I just, I phoned everybody mentioned in the article. I emailed them and I said, hey, I'm doing this blockchain for Conflict Minerals Project, can we talk about it? And I met a number of people in the industry. I got invites to go to events. I talked with uh, people from Intel, from Apple, from, uh, uh, from Dell, from you know, people that have been engaged with the subject for 10 years or more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up going to the OECD. I ended up uh, talking to people from the European Commission because it was a hot topic, but it was sort of at the crest of a wave. And... I started posting about all of the people I was talking with and about the ideas and and people saw I was now into blockchain and so I got recommended to be a speaker at certain events and 
keep in mind, this is like two months into figuring out that blockchain exists. <laughs> and sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. And I, I was invited to be on a panel at a developer's conference for blockchain. And the conference was in German. And my German is sort of rudimentary. And so what I did is I said, of course, I will do it. And uh, I, I read the Wikipedia article on blockchain and I sat at the end of the panel so that the host would ask everybody else first and I would listen for keywords about you know blockchain adoption and I would say, and I would go off on my pre-prepared thing in German about how uh, <laughs> about blockchain and I would go does that make sense and everyone would sort of nod and yes so oh, that's that's good that's good and so that's, that's like, smart I, I faked my way through it but uh, it, it was and then afterwards I started my own podcast and I wanted to segue into that. It's called Analysis and Chains, correct? Analysis and Chains. And like I had been posting about blockchain, and uh, in, by the time July rolled around, I had learned a fair bit. Uh, I had done some initial designs for MindSpider. I had tested the ideas with uh, key people in the industry about how it might work and how it would be different than what they had already tried. And, um, and, and then a friend of mine that I went to school with contacted me and was like, yeah, crypto is amazing. It's, it's going off the charts. It was summer 2017 when, you know, Bitcoin was just starting to break through, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and I actually hadn't been following the crypto scene. I had no idea that it was going off the charts with all. So you were following the, the technology itself, and not the <laughs> exactly, and not the economy. <laughs> I hadn't. I, I, no, up until that point, I hadn't followed the economy, and so I, we had talked together and said, "Okay, well, why don't we just start researching this and start our own podcast?" And so that was our outlet for doing research on what is blockchain. And so my friend did research on the economy, and I did research on the technology, and. We put it together, and uh, and it worked really well because at the time, most of the existing podcasts were either very technology focused mm -hmm. or they were focused on pumping coins, uh, pumping ICOs, mm -hmm. and so we attracted the attention of a number of people, including a big PR firm, uh, who was interested in our podcast, which at the time had 50 listeners. Uh, simply because there was no one else out there that was taking an analytical approach, and. Um, Obviously, some more entered the field at, <clears throat> around the same time or shortly mm -hmm. afterwards. But because of that, we were able to interview some very high-profile people from some really good startups. And, uh, and that was another benefit to us, is that I started to meet all of the big names. Uh, in the blockchain in the, community. In the blockchain so community. So you, you basically created also on top of the existing credibility just you were starting to get you got thought leadership just because of the not just because but the because of the podcast itself that was part of the strategy was uh, you know if you're going to be the person that sort of ties two worlds together it's important mm -hmm. to be seen as a blockchain person mm -hmm. and we've had a couple of people from big companies that have found us through the found mindspider through the podcast and uh, said oh this is interesting you're a blockchain person that has the solution to my problem so uh, for someone out there that has no connection with blockchain, I deeply uh, advise you to listen. I think it's episode 26. It's called Bitcoin and Blockchain. It's a very interesting where you go very in-depth on the technology, but at the same time in a very usual English. And I think it's very interesting. I believe it's, uh, I wanted to say 46. It was uh, at the beginning of January. I th yeah, I think so. I think your, your partner was Analysis not with you. Chains.com. Uh, it was beginning of January where I go into an explanation of what Bitcoin is, how yeah, it works. Probably it's 46, yeah. Uh, that, uh, like how the hashing algorithm works, uh, like why it's secure, mm -hmm. uh, what is proof of work, all of these things that are sort of core to understanding uh, blockchain. And I've actually <laughs> had to do a number of presentations on this for big companies. Uh, I've, I've talked already to... Uh, to a couple of large banks, uh, Interesting. Uh, like teaching them basically, this is how blockchain works and this is why it's important for you. This is why it's disruptive, but this is how, how it actually works. And, you know, the, like, because the companies, they don't know, they don't know. And they shouldn't have to um, be expected to know, mm -hmm. but this is very, very technical, but they should learn because it is going to... They should learn at least the analogies, maybe. At, at least. Uh, I think it, I, I think that the the nuggets of how it works like mm -hmm. what is proof of work are not beyond the average person okay there 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 are very easy ways to understand why it works um but 
I think it's important. So, I, when we, we were introduced, you talked with me saying that the podcast has been just been acquired by CryptoNews, correctly? Exactly. So what we've decided to do is become part of a larger brand because essentially I can't necessarily do everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had been working uh, closely with the founder of CryptoNews.com mm -hmm. and uh, he had given us uh, a number of people to interview who were very high quality and, and he came to me and said, hey, could you uh, make me a podcast for CryptoNews? And I was like, well, why don't I just, why don't we just join forces, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, because this way... So it was more of a merger. I don't know what uh, what things are, 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 like how you would define mm -hmm. it, but essentially we're part of Crypto News now. And uh, Crypto News is... Uh, they, they, they're a multi-channel brand. They're a mm -hmm. bigger brand than Analysis and Chains. We had... Analysis and Chains started with a podcast. We grew to a certain number of listeners. It was great. And then we started live meetups uh, in order to... Um, in order to more engage with people on the ground. We have uh, three cities covered. Berlin, Interesting. London, Berlin, London, and San Francisco. I'm actually going to be... Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we're, we're, we've been doing once a month meetups. But this is good for someone who's in the audience that is either in Berlin, London, or San Francisco yeah, should. I advertise it on meetup.com. It's called Blockchain Unpacked. And we try to do interviews with people in mm -hmm. the blockchain community. And you then repurpose that information for the po podcast itself? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I uh, post uh, the live recordings on the podcast later. and. Um, anyway, but I was at the point of deciding, oh, do I continue to try and grow my own media brand while getting MindSpider off the ground, which doesn't really make sense, or do I join forces with a bigger brand that can uh, use this as part of their overall channel, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then I can focus on on what I'm good at, which is hosting, and uh, and it would take less time, so I can now uh, spend the majority of my time doing MindSpider stuff. Interesting. Okay, now let's we'll go to more on the um, some more specific questions, not necessarily only on on blockchain and on the podcast itself. First of all, we have a question from the audience. Uh, thank you, Sam, the one that introduced us. Um, he asked, "How did you get into responsible material sourcing?" Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I mean, it, it was. Uh, I think I, I talked about this at the beginning. It was a combination of just being in the space, right? So being in uh, with my previous company in, in product stewardship circles, talking with people who were dealing with both the problem of hazardous materials and the problem of conflict minerals, and making sure. Uh, that they were sourcing responsibly and saying, okay, well, what are the problems that they're having? I think a lot of people get into blockchain thinking, okay, we've got a, we've got a blockchain. How can we put a blockchain on something? Mm -hmm. Blockchain for whatever, do like pick a, pick a word, blockchain for X and, um, blockchain for Uber. Yeah. And the thing is, if you do that, you come up with a great solution for a problem no one has. And this is what, uh, what I'm seeing with, with people piloting, uh, blockchain for uh, for conflict minerals on private permission blockchains is that they're coming up with a solution maybe for the downstream users that don't incentivize the upstream to actually participate. Mm -hmm. And although it's cool, uh, maybe the incentive right now is to be part of uh, a part of the latest blockchain craze, and you can sort of capitalize on the marketing. But in the long term. What people need is a solution for responsible sourcing. They don't need a blockchain for responsible sourcing. If blockchain is the thing that delivers that to them, then great. And so, you know, the incentives have to be aligned. It has to be solving the right problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so um, I think that, that, that with the right problem, like spending the better part of a year talking with people about the specific problem that they had in the industry is mm -hmm. really what led us to the solution that we have today. Second question. Uh, you seem to have to be in deep your toe in di different areas. So from Henwise to Analysis and Chains to MindSpider, uh, you said that Subvise was merged with a competitor. Mm -hmm. How do you manage your time? Because that seems like a very exhausting life. Yeah. 
It is. Um, but do you use any kind of framework or something like, like uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy from Twitter, Jack Dorsey, that like every Monday, Wednesday, and it's finance or whatever, or do you like ad hoc and work on depending? Yeah. I use the whatever is most urgent in front of my nose uh, mm -hmm. methodology, which is probably not the most efficient. Mm -hmm. However, like there, there's a there's a uh, essentially a list of priorities that I have in front of me, and the top priority is MindSpider right now, and then I have the the things that play into that. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, I I'm right now dealing with the most urgent things. Mm -hmm. I think in the long run it's going to probably shift a bit. I mean, mm -hmm. like, this is something I've dealt with as a problem for a long time, which is how to deal with this organizational mess of having multiple projects on the table. And as an entrepreneur, it's very easy to get into that uh, because you find a lot of things interesting and so maybe you start something and maybe you, you need something on the side to keep it going until you're funded or whatever. Um, I think for, for me right now, MindSpider is number one. Mm -hmm. Analysis and Chains is important because part of it is benefiting MindSpider. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons and, uh, that it, it is still a priority. Um, Subvise, uh, I've largely handed that over. Okay. Uh, Hinwise, I've got a couple of projects with that, but they don't take up a lot of time. Okay. And so really the, the, the majority of my effort is only ever in one project at a time. Great. Uh, let's go for the fire round now. So, you know, you're a podcaster, you know, this idea is I'll ask you something and you have one minute to go into it. Okay. What's the one to three books that influenced you the most? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so I think number one is going to be How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm -hmm. It is a classic. Some of the stuff is outdated, but that has changed, fundamentally changed how I've approached business, how I've approached people, how I, like, um, yeah, how I viewed the world. Mm -hmm. I think it really helped me go from a sort of fiery, hard to get along with uh, a, a young pup to, uh, to a, a fairly more... <laughs> a slightly less fiery, a slightly easier to get along with man. So, <laughs> so how to win friends and influence people? That has uh, been really good. Um, the I I I almost want to say getting to yes, except I haven't actually read it. I've read the Coles notes. <laughs> that doesn't count. I I don't know. There's been a lot of stuff that's influenced mm -hmm. me through. Uh, through, um, through the, my education, through the MBA. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, honestly, I, the, there's really only one that comes to mind as this is a, this is a book that has changed things. You know? okay. Been a lot of people that have influenced me. But. Uh, what's the, your favorite tool slash the tool you wouldn't be able to live without? Be it an app, hardware, whatever. Sam, for example, said the Erlang. Um, good question. I do an awful lot with Slack. Slack, uh, I mean, I should be doing more with Telegram, mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't quite mastered it yet. Mm -hmm. um, I have to think of sort of my uh, my working thing. I mean, I, I'm I'm am an old man, right? So I'm mm -hmm. you know I'm approaching forty. I've uh, I use email heavily still. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone hates email, but that's really, I love email. That's really a lot of people hate email. I love email because I started using uh, an email app called Newton, the from the formerly deceased Cloud Magic, and I love just using that because it's really easy. To, like I know when someone reads my email, I snooze the emails I send out to later, and it's like something that I go really easily. Hmm. No, I mean, I, and then I have my own inbox zero kind of thing, so I know how, how to approach my own email. Yeah, uh, I mean, 
I use a lot of online tools. I have no idea which ones I couldn't live without, but I think the thing I use more, more than anything else is, uh, is just email. But right now, it's email, WhatsApp, and Slack. Uh, tell me something you've changed your mind in the last six months. In the last six months, um, well, I was uh, looking at more of a centralized model, to be honest. Uh, when I started MindSpider, I thought that the best way of approaching it would be completely different than what I'm approaching now. I wasn't looking at building an infrastructure. I was looking at building a blockchain company that would, yeah, we'd do an ICO and then we would, you know, charge a fee off of every transaction on our network. And then I realized that that's not going to change an industry. That's going to build a company. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with building a company, but I would then basically set myself up for creating a hundred competitors. And then the competitors would lead to this problem of, of multiple block, private permission blockchains, which would uh, hamper mass adoption in the industry. And I think that that's sort of counterproductive to what I wanted to see, which is an industry change. Interesting. Uh, one of the last questions. So if you started today from scratch, mm -hmm. where would you focus? If I was starting today from scratch with the knowledge I have now? Yes. Uh, team building. I probably would have, okay, team building and fundraising. So if I started completely over, it's just me, I've got the knowledge that I have now, I would, number one, create a very, a much more simplified white paper. It, I went very much into detail into how this is going to roll out over the next 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And I probably would have done something much simpler. I would have focused on getting a, uh, getting a solid team behind me and then getting as simple a pilot out as possible, and then I would have PR'd the living heck out of that successful pilot. And that's still what we're gonna do, it's just I would have done it about a year sooner because then mm -hmm. I would have gone, because essentially what's changed since a year ago is I understand the problem, right? And I understand how to approach it. So if you started today, you would take out? I would have taken out the entire thing that I couldn't take out, you know, like, like I couldn't, have known this a year ago without really going deep into the problem, the industry, and what they're facing. So that's what I would do. Uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, other than analysisinchains.com, I w strongly recommend everyone to listen to it. It's very fascinating, and I actually spend a lot of some time listening to some of your episodes. Thank you. Very well thought out. And as I said, that specific episode touched me because it's a very simple explanation of a very complex mm -hmm. technology. Uh, so if someone wants to get in touch with you, how can they find you online? Well, I guess they could uh, contact me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I connect with pretty much everyone on LinkedIn. And uh, I consider that a, a really good way of, uh, of keeping in touch with a, a large network of blockchain people. Mm -hmm. And aside from that, they can find my email address rather easily on mindspider.com. And if I get overwhelmed, then I'll just change email addresses and stop talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, your LinkedIn and will be uh, on the, the show notes. So as a parting piece of guidance, and once again... They can also contact me on Twitter. I, I believe my, uh, my handle is nwilliamsmba. Yeah, I think so. I think so. nwilliamsmba. So as a parting piece of guidance, uh, one advice that you have for our Pioneer tribe? Don't neglect your personal brand a, a lot of a lot of how you get known in the industry and a lot of how people trust you when you are small when you are starting out when nobody knows you is your personal brand how do people trust you uh, what do they perceive you as and they per should perceive you as knowledgeable about the tech the, the person to go to for the industry that you're in uh, and the only way to do that is with creating content talking with people, going on shows, doing PR, talking as much as possible, and also building up other people. You know, it's like you, not everyone is going to, um, not everyone, not everyone is, is going to be able to promote you unless you're able to provide them value as well. And mm -hmm. so it's sort of a give and take relationship. And don't be uh, afraid to sort of give value, give value, give value until you're perceived as and seen legitimately as the provider of value and the go-to person mm -hmm. in your industry. 
Thank you very much for your time, Nathan. It was a great time. It was a great interview. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and the fantastic content that you gave us yeah, and that you were provided me to be able to show to the rest of the world. Have a great one. You too. Thank you so much for plugging into this conversation. I must say that Nathan is a very entertaining guest, as you might have figured out, and we'd love to thank him for his time. I can't stress enough. Go and subscribe to his podcast. It's called Analysis in Chains. And if you still don't understand a lot about blockchain, follow the link that I dropped on the show notes so that you can hear a great description of what it is and how it works. It's a great honor to have you listen to this new podcast and hope that if you have any questions or anything I can help with, feel free to reach out on social media. Once again, at It's DeAndre or at Pioneers Show or on the website pioneersshow.com. Any information that you might have missed will probably link up in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows and help everybody be the entrepreneurs of their lives and careers. Once again, it was really a great pleasure having you over there. Have a great time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.